Hi, and welcome to Energy Transition Talk, the podcast that explores the challenges and opportunities of transitioning to a low-carbon future. I'm Paulina. I'm Justine. And I'm Jim. And we're your hosts for Energy Transition Talk. In this podcast, we seek to break down some of the most complex and important issues regarding the energy transition and how it impacts us. In each episode, we tell a story by bringing you various perspectives about the energy transition so that you can make the best and most informed decisions for you and your communities. In 2022, global greenhouse emissions reached a high of 53 billion metric tons of CO2 equivalent. To get that down to net zero by 2050, we can either stop admitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, or we can pull out CO2 that's already been emitted. Today, we're gonna focus on the latter solution, addressing the areas of our economy where energy emissions are hard to abate. One innovative solution is carbon capture and sequestration, or CCS, which involves capturing carbon dioxide from the air and storing it underground. In this episode, we first speak with Dr. Saro Megardijian, a researcher at the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico, on CCS, which is now considered a crucial part of addressing our growing carbon emissions. He explains for us what carbon capture and storage is and how it works, as well as the potential role it will play in the energy transition. Another solution is monitoring carbon emissions uh, for gases like methane to identify and mitigate leaks and flares before they they become too large. We also speak to two graduate students, Will Daniels from the Colorado School of Mines and Rachel Day from the Colorado State University, whose research focuses on methods for detecting methane emissions from oil and gas production using a cool technique called MMRV or Monitor, Measure, Report and Verify. Technology advances in both areas are developing fast. So these are areas that we need to pay attention to. So let's start off. Here's our conversation with Dr. Madrigishian on carbon capture and storage. Well, this episode, we're going to focus on kind of renewable energy sources or maybe other ways that we can manage the carbon from our fossil fuel uh, energies. But we don't want to talk about wind and solar. Everybody kind of talks about wind and solar. So we're going to talk about some other things such as geothermal and hydrogen, but uh, for this this interview, we were very fortunate to have uh, Saro Margudichen, uh, who is really going to talk to us about a really important topic um, about carbon sequestration uh, that the industry is uh, is is really focused on. But it's a it's a really important challenge uh, if we've uh, the industry has learned how to uh, take hydrocarbons out of the ground. Now we need to learn how to put carbon back into the ground. So, Saro, uh, welcome to the uh, Energy Transition Talk podcast. Thank you, Jim. Pleasure to be here. Uh, well, we're going to start out just generally. I mean, would you like to introduce yourself, talk a little bit about what got you into um, your interest in energy systems, why you came to USC, and then the question we ask everybody, because uh, it's the theme of the podcast, is is what does energy transition mean to you? All right. So, I came to USC initially as an undergrad. I was looking at chemical engineering and I was majoring in chemical engineering. And then towards the end of my freshman year, I decided to pursue petroleum. I realized that that was a, a realistic and valuable option and also complementary to chemical engineering. So at USC, there is this, there is this nice uh, hybrid nature in the, in the undergrad where you can major in a more general engineering major like chemical engineering or mechanical engineering and develop an emphasis in petroleum engineering. So I did that. After that, I uh, pursued my master's in petroleum engineering at USC and then went for my PhD. I saw the energy, so I've been in the energy systems space a while. I've worked in refining, I did some internships there. I've worked in upstream research, another internship there. I was a fellow at two uh, national laboratories focusing on uh, energy-related work in the subsurface at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And then later on, I actually was a fellow at and worked at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Although, to be clear, whatever everything I'm saying here are, are solely my own views. They don't represent those of the lab or, or anyone. So what? So one of the attractive things about the energy field is that it is broad, it is essential, it is in many ways diverse, uh, both in terms of its participation, 
who, who participates in it, which is pretty much everybody, as well as its impact. Uh, one of the things about it, though, is that it's also something that is kind of taken for granted. People don't think much when the lights are on. They do think very much if it doesn't work. So they there is this kind of bias towards uh, noticing when things aren't working. Even though in the general scheme of things, it's it's actually very, uh, it, it delivers tremendous value. I mean, we're not using, you know, horses to to go around where we can drive and drive to the beach at least in la we can drive to the beach we can drive around so there's this tremendous uh freedom that we get from energy and that i think is a valuable contribution that the kind of work that i do and others in this field do is uh is good for humanity now as far as what does the energy transition mean to me you know, so it's been about a year since I, I graduated with my PhD. During that time, I had work with the United States Department of Energy at Los Alamos National Laboratory looking at geologic carbon storage risk assessment. So I've had experience within academia and now within within industry. I work at an AI company uh, that does work in the energy industry. And what I've seen from the energy transition is that in the scientific community, I think the definition is pretty clear. The The definition is movement towards an energy system with lower CO2 emissions, generally lower greenhouse gas emissions, while also providing reliable energy for people in the world and bringing in people who currently do not have access to energy into the energy system. So there are people who are energy poor, don't have a access to electricity so we want to bring them in too so there is a, a, a theme of essentially sustainability reliability and you could say in a sense some people might call it equity but I, I think you could also call it expansion of the energy system so that's what i see in the scientific community when when you compare that to the energy transition as it's discussed popularly it seems that certain things are there there you start having different opinions uh some people say the problem is emissions other people have more fundamental problems with the energy system tied to uh the 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 political systems that they support so it starts to get into things not directly related to uh the consumption of energy more like the social structures around it so i think that the energy transition you know, as I said, in the scientific world, I think it's pretty clear what the definition is. In the general media, I think it depends from outlet to outlet what they mean. Well, I, I think that's exactly uh, on the purpose of our podcast is uh, is to really try to discuss, you know, not only the expert scientific view, as you talked about it, but then the kind of the, the views that kind of come from that in terms of the general community. But uh, you had a have a very interesting background, all you know, al already in your in your sort of career. To to get in uh, to uh, kind of your current research, your current area beyond that, in in terms of this geologic uh, carbon capture, can uh, can you start out and just give us a little bit of a brief background about what carbon capture and storage is is all about? Maybe a layman's view of how it works, uh, so we can kind of understand the importance and the challenges. Sure, and a, a little bit of background. So the the big the big issues that we're facing with CO two emissions is that we're putting a lot of CO two into the atmosphere. We burn gasoline, we burn jet fuel, we burn uh, we burn coal. These all emit CO two into the atmosphere. So the idea is, how about we take that CO two from the atmosphere, or which would have been emitted to the atmosphere, let's say from a power plant. Let's take that CO2, the gas we're going to emit, and let's let's put it in the ground. That's that's what it is in a nutshell. And the idea is by putting it deep into the ground, you keep it away from the atmosphere for a long period of time. So then it doesn't have a climactic or other effects on the environment. Kind of getting back to putting the carbon dioxide back into the ground. I mean, you, you explain why. I mean, that's a very important why. How what how do we do it? What are some of the challenges? So, before explaining the challenges, I think it would be good to 
discuss the the general system by which this would be done. So you have three parts. One part is getting the carbon. You can think it, it, you can think of it as basically as a carbon source. The second part is transporting the carbon to where you're going to inject it in the ground. And the third part is actually injecting in the ground and managing it. So starting with the first part, which is capturing the carbon. Basically, you have a carbon source. This could be something like an ethanol plant, or it could be a power plant, something that burns coal. This is essentially a place where carbon is carbon dioxide is concentrated. In a power plant, they emit to the atmosphere. Now, the idea is instead of emitting to the atmosphere, where it would, would have been emitted to the atmosphere, like the top of the, the stack, basically it's a giant pipe. Uh, you take it from you you take that that carbon dioxide and then you 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 somehow purify it to put into a pipeline. The pipeline is what's used for transport. So that's that's one point. There's a, so one is industrial capture. The other one is direct air capture. Direct air capture consists of actually pulling carbon dioxide out of the general atmosphere. It's not near any industrial source necessarily. It's just it can be in the middle of nowhere. You it basically it filters the air, removes the carbon dioxide, and then concentrates it. So it it, it takes little bits from the air. And so it has them all kind of packed together. You can think of that as a kind of a general overview. And so it it basically sucked it out of the air. So those are the two capturing ideas that you can think of. One is you capture it from an industrial source. The other one is you, ca you, you capture it from the atmosphere. Once you've captured it, you know, you've got to do something with it. And what you do in the case of geologic carbon storage is you put it into a pipeline. The, the pipeline is, I mean, it's what it sounds like. It's basically a giant pipe. It's like the plumbing in your home, except, you know, bigger and more sophisticated. But it's basically, a, a, you put it in a pipe and you ship it to the place where you want to store it. Pipelines can be a pretty cheap way to do, to do that, as opposed to putting it in trains or trucks or whatever, whatever other vehicle transport. So you put it in a pipeline, you transport it, and then at the site, so once it arrives where you're going to store it, what... What this is now is essentially you're running the oil industry in reverse. Oil industry pumps oil out of the ground. Here, we're pumping carbon into the ground. And so what happens is that carbon dioxide that was shipped through the pipeline is pressurized and injected into the ground through a well. You can think of the well as, a, as basically a long straw. It's a long straw, and you're basically blowing into it and the CO2 goes down and goes into the deep underground. That's a, that, that is, uh, and, and deep underground has rock layers that don't allow fluid like CO2 to go up. So buoyancy would push CO, so there's water underground. So what the CO2 would do is once it gets in to the underground, it wants to go up because there's water, you know, gases go above water. Kind of if you try blowing in water, your, your, the, the air come, your bubbles come up. So there are rocks in the earth that actually will block the CO2 from going up to the atmosphere. And so there it hopefully stays for a long period of time on the order, hopefully of like hundreds of years. Well, I think that's that that's pretty clear. Um, one of the kind of questions here is this um, brand new technology emerging that we're just trying for the first time, or is there a bit of a history about doing this? There's, a, there's actually a lot of history. There's decades of history of injecting CO2 in the ground, particularly in West Texas in the Permian Basin uh, in CO2-enhanced oil recovery. As, as ironic as it sounds, one of the biggest uses of CO2 is to generate, is to pump more oil out of the ground. That's that's what happened. So what we've been doing this for, for a long time. We have a lot of experience pumping CO2 in the ground, at least in, in West Texas. That's called what? Enhanced oil recovery, correct? CO2 enhanced oil recovery. CO2 is pumped into the ground where it dissolves in oil. It kind of That kind of fluffs up the oil. And so the oil can push out more and, and come out of the wells uh, with higher pressure. So other than the um, kind of the managing to try to get the harder to get oil uh, to, to come up to the surface, what other kind of applications are kind of best suited for this carbon capture? You talked a little bit about power plants, but can you go into the maybe the 
the the the other applications that are being looked at today so when you're talking so when when discussing uh carbon capture it's important to distinguish that there is the geologic carbon storage and then there there is a slew of other ways of of managing it as well carbon capture at its at its most basic is capturing co2 and putting it into some form where it's no longer in the atmosphere so you have things like enhanced weathering essentially putting kind of putting rocks or trying to absorb the co2 from, from the rocks you, you've got planting trees there was a remember the trillion trees initiative so those are also forms of, of carbon capture so i just wanted to clarify that there there are geologic ways of doing this there are also other ways however those other ways i have not so far seen to be able to deal with as much co2 as geologic carbon storage with the possible exception of planting trees i guess one of the challenges then is the volume how, how can we store enough of the co2 in whatever trap or reservoir we're looking at to to make a difference in terms of climate change in, in my judgment uh yes that we can the thing that's needed is to certify what's called pore space so underground is basically a giant sponge people sometimes think you know oil is in pools underground actually it, it, it's not it, it's actually like within a, a rock sponge so what what happens is that when you're when we're saying you know do we have the space we have a lot of this space in terms of like pore space. These like uh, you can think of them as you know the holes in the Swiss cheese, where the ground is like a giant sponge or Swiss cheese. We have a lot of that space. The question is, can we inject safely into that? That that's what the question is. The space is there, as far as uh, what what we found. I guess another challenge then, as you you kind of mentioned, is that you you need to keep it there for hundreds of years, if not thousand years. Uh, so the keeping the trap, uh, you know, kind of uh, in, uh, in, you know, that it's so it doesn't leak, that there aren't faults or overpressuring or whatever it is. There's there's kind of a whole, just as we manage a reservoir to get fluids out of it, there has to be some sort of reservoir carbon management to keep the, the sequestered carbon dioxide in the trap. Yes. Yes, I've, I've actually done research exactly on, on that topic, uh, particularly with respect to faults. And that is, I think that at, right now is one of the great challenges. There are, last time I checked, over 100 permit applications for geologic carbon storage uh, waiting at the EPA, United States Environmental Protection Agency. So far, I've seen... I think only two that have been approved, and those are related to the Illinois, uh, in Illinois Basin uh, Decatur project, which is a CO two sequestration project, and the, you know, this is challenging. It's challenging to to certify the safety of 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 an injection operation. That's that I think is one of the the, the major the major challenges as well as opportunities right now. As you can see, the permit applicants, there are a ton of them. People want to do this. But can we can we certify that? Can we make sure can we assure uh the public that it is safe? That's that's where I think the question is right now. So I guess part of this current interest in all of these permits, et cetera, is that there are uh kind of uh, tax subsidies and and other things that the the US government and other governments are doing to try to encourage the uh, industry and other players to uh, to look at this opera, this thing. But then again, that you have the thing that it has to be safe. Yeah, actually, the, the incentives are, are, are have been gradually increased and they've been, I mean, with some modifications in, in, with the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, there's there's actually a lot of incentive right now. There's a lot of incentive. There's a lot of will to act, to to do this. Uh, companies want to do it, particularly in the U.S. The government wants it to be done. States want it to be done. The people, a lot of people, want it to be done. It actually enjoys bipartisan support in in the Congress, in the United States Congress. So it's the the will is there. Even the money is there to a great extent. It's the it's really knowledge 
that I think is is the challenge. I mean, you've got you've got the forty five Q tax credits already already enacted at the federal level. Even states have their own incentives, like California has the low carbon fuel standards uh, credits. So yeah, I think it, it in, in my judgment, it's, at this point, it's it, there's a big knowledge issue that we have, basically finding out how how we can be sure, or at least reasonably sure. So that would be the the kind of number one research challenge, is to uh, you know essentially uh, certify or make make the public a lot more comfortable about by doing this we're actually going to do it safely and it accomplishes the goals of keeping the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Yes. Well, uh, this this is all you know kind of really fascinating with regard to the uh, things, but. One of the challenges, opportunities that we want to have is to reach out and maybe educate the general public who's not a PhD and 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 working in ge uh, geologic carbon sequestration. Uh, so, what, what what should they know about all of this? Uh, you know, when when they're maybe considering is this, um, as you said before from your very beginning, we kind of tend to not think about energy until it's not working. Right until when the you hit the light switch and nothing happens, and then we worry about energy. But obviously, with the energy transition, we're trying to make a a major point that it really does involve everybody. That we have to, we all have to think about energy, and we have to think about the energy transition and and the impacts that that it has around uh, decarbonization. So, if you were talking to someone um, just in the community about uh, the things that they should know and the things that the questions they should ask, uh, you know, as new laws are being passed or new new tax credits are being, uh, you know, kind of ordered or new projects are being permitted, et cetera. You know, what what would you uh, what's your advice to the our podcast audience about what they should know about all this? So I, so the, the, there are a couple major points about carbon capture utilization storage and particularly geologic carbon storage, which are important to keep in mind. One is that geologic carbon storage has potential to do things that wind and solar, and for that matter, geothermal, uh, cannot. Geologic carbon storage has the potential to do two major things. The first thing is to delink greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuel consumption. Right now, the more fossil fuels we consume, the more our CO2 emissions go up. Geologic carbon storage, unlike wind and solar, has uh, not just geologic carbon storage, but also any kind of carbon capture utilization storage. Unlike using wind and solar just for electricity, they they have the potential to re actually reduce the, the CO2 emissions while continuing to burn hydrocarbons. So we you can continue driving you can continue using jet fuel as you currently are and essentially just mitigate that from an emissions standpoint. It's In that sense, it, it requires less lifestyle adjust, adjustment. And that's also one of the, that's one of the positives of it. It's also one of the things some people uh, find more, uh, more controversial because it does continue to support the existence of fossil fuels. But from a, from a pragmatic standpoint, you know, we have an energy system in the world that's tremendously fossil fuel dependent. It's not going away overnight. We, it's It makes sense to at least look at how to clean it up. And so this is an opportunity to be able to continue using the system while reducing its impact, uh, its environmental impact. So that's number one, delinking fossil fuel consumption from greenhouse gas emissions, something wind and solar do not do in and of themselves the the second the second thing that geologic carbon storage does and carbon capture utilization sequestration is that it allows us to undo the past again something that wind and solar do not do whatever we put in the atmosphere is not going out just because we're, we we've switched to wind and solar but in, if we capture the carbon out of the atmosphere we can undo the past to some extent so it's a unique tool it's as far as what it can do. So these are the two kind of major points as to wh what what value it can provide. More directly, as far as jobs, as far as what we're seeing in this coming decade, is that it is likely going to take off, 
rapidly this decade. Geologic carbon storage and more generally carbon capture, but I think especially geologic carbon storage, with all the pent-up permits at the EPA, uh, it's the pressure is there. And then once we once things are are approved, uh, I think we're going to see we're we're very likely going to see major growth in this field. There's a lot that can be done. And so and, and also it's going to be led by the United States because we have the we have the frankly the 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 best CO2 infrastructure because we had an economic need for it from CO2 EOR. So we're going to, what I'm anticipating is that the likely scenario is uh, seeing very likely a, a US led CCOS expansion, but also additional parts of the world can, can do it too. And I guess there's a lot of uh, reuse of current skill sets that, uh, that can happen at, you know, and maybe some of the, the, the ways in, that we've used to build us our fossil fuel infrastructure, we can now just use some, a lot of those same skills, reservoir engineering, drilling, uh, so a lot of the chemical uh, evaluations you said, maybe we already have a lot of these skills available. We do, we do. Uh, that, that, that was a, That's something that is actually very notable about this, which is that the oil and gas industry actually has those skills, interestingly enough, to address the CO2 emissions through geologic carbon storage. So they can shift and in part have been shifting from just doing oil and gas to doing geologic carbon storage. And this is one of the things that we're seeing California. California is often ahead of the ball in these, these kinds of things. Uh, we're seeing in, in Kern County, there's a, which is the oil, which is where a lot of the oil and gas, oil production is in California. There is a shift towards an interest in geologic carbon storage. So an oil company, like let's say California Resources Corporation, formerly Oxy, now wants to do geologic carbon storage. Same skill set. Some tweaks regarding the physics, but overall it's you're doing a very similar job. Well, I want to thank you for a very clear explanation of some of the of of the benefits and and challenges and what this thing is. Is there anything just kind of as a last question? that you think that we maybe didn't discuss about this so far that you'd like to, to add and, and 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 to get into the uh to your interview uh i think i think the thing is to to look at it to look at it optimistically there are there is stuff that can be there are things that can be done to accelerate these trends uh, as far as geologic carbon storage and carbon capture i think more generally there are there are, I think, an opportunity for state geological surveys and other government agencies to take a proactive role in de-risking pore space. As I mentioned, one of the one of the main things right now is can we inject into a, a given piece of land or a given reservoir? Basically, can we can we put the CO2 somewhere? I think there is a role that state geological surveys might be able to play by proactively de-risking places in order to boost their economy. So the idea is the state geological survey does a study, publishes a study, says, "Hey, you know, this is this looks good," and then that can that can lower the the barrier to entry for for industry partners, and that can boost the local economy, and take advantage of tax credits. I think there are opportunities for things like that. And in general, I think this is this is very promising. This is something that can really make a difference in the energy transition. It can smooth out transition to more the to to more renewable sources of energy, like not like uh, wind and solar. And it can also back up the renewables. I mean, if you're if you need some amount of renew uh, some natural gas to make up for the intermittency of renewables, then having that natural gas. With geologic carbon storage can make more sense than just having it emit into the atmosphere. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. I think there is quite a bit of optimism, certain technical challenges, but overall optimism. Well, we always like to finish on an optimistic note, and you've certainly done that. So, Saro, thanks uh, very much for uh, for your time and for the for helping to educate us on a on a, a new and important kind of topic to the the whole energy transition sort of theme. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
In the second half of this episode, we dive into the topic of monitoring and reducing methane emissions from oil and gas operations using emerging technologies and data analytics. This has become a hot topic lately as methane has accounted for about 30% of global warming since the Industrial Revolution and is 80 times more potent at warming than carbon dioxide over a 20-year period. And a lot of methane leaks into the atmosphere from oil and gas operations. The Environmental Protection Agency estimates that methane leaks account for about 1% of total natural gas production each year, which would account for 10% of natural gas's contribution to climate change. However, recent studies have found much higher rates of leakage from natural gas production than previously known. Thus, methane leaks can make natural gas just as bad as coal in contributing to climate change. We therefore cannot overstate the importance of methane emissions in the energy transition. I now speak to two research students, Walt Daniels from the Colorado School of Mines and Rachel Day from the Energy Institute at Colorado State University about methods for detecting methane emissions from oil and gas production and the role that data might play in reducing emissions from oil and gas operations. Here is my conversation with them. So today I'm excited to have Will Daniels and Rachel Day as our guests. Uh, Will Daniels is a PhD student in the Department of Applied Mathematics and Statistics at the Colorado School of Mines. His current research focuses on methods for methane emission detection, localization, and quantification of oil gas sites using continuous monitoring systems. He also works on methods for developing site-level measurement-informed methane inventories using multi-scale measurements. And Rachel Day is finishing up her master's graduate program in the Systems Engineering Department at Colorado State University. Her research has been centered around controlled release deployments conducted in the Upper Green River. Uh, Marcellus and the Permian Basins analyzing the performance of continuous monitoring point sensors at active oil and gas facilities. Um, I, I find that it's very interesting that you both work on measuring methane emissions from oil and gas operations using emerging technologies such as satellites, drones, and data analytics. So, Will, Rachel, it's uh, a pleasure to be joined by you today. So thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, so maybe to start us off, could you tell us a bit about yourself, your backgrounds, how um, did you become maybe methane hunters? What inspired you to pursue this research topic? And maybe what makes you interested about uh, the energy transition? Um, well, I went to undergrad at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. And my mentor down there, she had done work with Dan Zimmerly at CSU in Colorado State. And when I finished undergrad, I worked for a civil engineering firm. I've kind of always had a love for the outdoors and protecting the environment. So my mentor down at Fort Lewis, kind of when I was ready to get back into academia and I was slightly bored with industry, she recommended to reach out to Dan and check out the Zimmerly group and what was going on with methane. And honestly, I had no idea that, you know, I, I understood global warming, climate change, but I just really had no idea how quickly the scale of just growing knowledge around emissions and especially methane emissions were and how quickly it was growing. Um, and so I guess that's kind of how I got into it. I just lucked upon getting a good recommendation to a good group. Um, and yeah, I've been kind of a lot of my work has been um, going to oil and gas facilities and kind of just testing the performance of these sensors and their algorithms. Thank you, Rachel. Um, well, would you mind sharing a bit about you? Yeah, yeah, I, I kind of have a similar story. Like I, I really am passionate about the environment. Um, like all my hobbies are, or a lot of my hobbies involve being outside. So um uh the climate's always been something that that that, that I've cared a lot about um and uh, I guess in terms of work when I started my um graduate program at, at mines I was looking for an advisor and was kind of just like scrolling through the mines website and, and found uh, Dr. Hammerling uh Dora Hammerling um and saw that she did like environmental statistics and so kind of reached out to her and then that kind of just got the ball rolling and 
um, did did some various stuff on like fire modeling, and then and then we kind of got into the methane world um, at the same time. And and yeah, it's I think an exciting space to work in. Like there's a lot of focus on it right now, like from academia and also the industry uh, on reducing emissions. So yeah, it, it's a cool lot lots of energy in in the space. So it's cool to be working in it. I think absolutely. And when we're thinking about the energy transition, how would you define it? And specifically when it has to do maybe with the role of natural gas within this transition? It's such a, it's such a heavy topic, the energy transition. There's so many different layers. Um, and I think that's something that I've really learned through my graduate program is just how much, how many unknowns there are. I think a, a big part of the energy transition is we can't just we can't just pick one form of energy to work with and I feel like that's maybe what's kind of gotten us tied up a little bit in the past is I think the transition has to move more towards how do we create an infrastructure and and kind of an environment where we can use lots of different forms of energy because we don't always have one and I think that you know, a lot of the energy transition maybe is looked at as a, just a strict move to renewables or just a, you know, a strict move to using more batteries or more, you know, some form of it. But I feel like a big part of it is kind of meshing everything together. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I, I I think I look at it the same way and, and kind of as we figure out how to do that, like how to mesh everything together, I think it's important to you know, try to reduce the emissions from from the sources that we're currently currently relying on as much as possible. You know, so like as we transition to, uh, you know, maybe more better sourced batteries or, or you know, like other types of ener energy. You know, there's still a reliance on natural gas to you know heat heat homes in the winter and stuff like that. And so making sure that the emissions from these sources that we still rely on are, are as low as possible is, I think, for for me also part of, part of the transition. You know. And maybe when we're thinking about um, your both your research focus and we're thinking about um, measuring and using like different methods and technologies, uh, maybe could you could we think about um, what type of methods, what type of technologies you're using, what type of measurements you're focusing on, and maybe the outcomes, the advantages that you've seen um, based off of, uh, of your research. And maybe how we can compare these results to other data forms, to other forms of energy that you've encountered, so that we can maybe better understand how um, how this maps out into the larger conversations of the energy transition. Yeah, I um, <laughs> I feel like my research has shown a lot of interesting things. You know, I'm focused on continuous monitoring point sensors. So they're, you know, they're placed on the fence line of these oil and gas facilities and they pick up a measurement showing, you know, a concentration reading of methane. And then some algorithms, you know, put that together and create some sort of emission rate. And as the whole world is pushing to try to reduce emissions, we have a lot of new techniques that are coming out, a lot of technologies that all have kind of different data. And I don't know, Will, if this is what you're seeing, but I feel like it's kind of something that we're really trying to wrap our heads around right now with like methane quantification in particular is, yeah, what is, we need to have all of this data be more transparent and more on a level where we can compare apples to apples. And I, that's kind of, yeah, I'm sure we'll get into talking about top down, bottom up, different measurements. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what I, yeah, I feel like just kind of a getting the data more unified is something I see as big. Totally. Yeah, I agree too. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I think, yeah, so my, the stuff I've been working on for the last couple of years is like those, just like you were saying, Rachel, like those point sensors, they, they measure concentration and then you have to do some sort of algorithm or, 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 you know, model to translate that into an emission rate. Um, and, and that's kind of the, the, the stuff I've been working on is, is producing those models and, and putting them out into 
um, the public domain um, so that they can be transparent. And so that's that's kind of the the aspect I work on because I, I totally agree that you know there's a lot of companies doing this right now, like different ways of measuring methane, um, and a lot of those algorithms that they're developing are you know proprietary because it's 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 the thing they're trying to sell. Um, so I think it's beneficial to have um, you know partnerships with academia where you know the um, you know, people like us can can work on these algorithms and put them out in, into the literature, or 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 do like controlled release testing, like like you do at MedTech. You know, because I think making sure that all the technologies are doing what they're saying they're doing is also super important. And well, maybe what um, you're mentioning about maybe these predictive models and data analytics. Um, is there any way in which you think they will help um, oil and gas operators and regulators reduce their environmental footprint when it comes to natural gas and the industry. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. Yeah, I think like basically every every type of measurement technology, unless you're like, like literally like sticking a box on top of the thing that's leaking and capturing every single molecule of gas, like all these measurement techniques have some sort of algorithm underlying how they translate the, the, the raw sensor data in, into some sort of emission rate. Um, so I think like the, the big the idea of like algorithms and, and, and model development is super important um, because the, these measurement techniques are, are or some sort of measurement is 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 going to be critical because I think it's pretty well accepted now that kind of the traditional bottom up method of estimating emissions um, underestimates and doesn't capture you know variability between different types of sites or operational practices and stuff like that so yeah I, I guess yeah. In, in short, like the measurements are super important. And then all of these different ways that you measure rely on some sort of model um, to translate, you know, like the, the raw sensor observations into some sort of useful information. And we, we, we like to, we like to kind of explain things out for our audience who uh, might not be as well versed in, in all these concepts, all these topics. And Rachel, you were mentioning um, like top, uh, top down and bottom up the types of measurements. So maybe could you um, walk us through the difference between these uh, different types of measurements and maybe why they're important when we're um, looking at estimating methane emissions? Yeah. Um, so kind of for, for the longest time, we've used um, the greenhouse gas reporting program. Um, that's, you know, it's set requirements for reporting of emissions. Um, there are different subparts for, you know, different, uh, fields for emissions, but for oil and gas facilities, um, you know, it's the bottom up measurement involve like a mission, an emission factor. And so that emission factor is different for, you know, all the types of equipment that could be on site. And so you take that and you are, you're applying that to some sort of rate that, you know, most oil and gas operators are getting manually by hand. Um, and then your that factor that kind of calculates out to your what you're reporting for the greenhouse gas reporting program. Um, and so like Will was mentioning, you know, there's research showing that those those values are below what we assume is accurate for emissions occurring at operating oil and gas sites. Um, so that's kind of the bottom up. And then the top down measurements are more, it's more looking at a larger area. So you have, you know, you have aerial flights with planes and you have drone activity. And so that's kind of measuring an emission rate over a larger area. And there's also new research showing that, you know, that might be running higher than what is actually emitting in certain areas. And it's also interesting because you have, you know, if you're flying, if you're gonna be doing an assessment, a top-down, you know, method, you're flying a plane, you're using fuel, it's it's not something you do continuously. So you can catch something that you wouldn't catch in 10 minutes if you were to fly past it. Or they're kind of seeing that, you know, they're there are things happening when you're taking just a screenshot with some top-down techniques that you can't really, you can't really get everything. So kind of continuous monitoring is kind of a newer technique 
and as and we could we could talk about some of the legislation that's coming in um but it kind of the continuous monitoring it gives more of a continuous real time of what's going on um but maybe i took that way too far yeah that's a, no that I, I yeah i think i think about really similar problems rachel and and like you mentioned i think this is like a super key point to the whole thing is like having having these multi-scale measurement platforms is 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 really useful as as these technologies are developing um you know like you said like if if you have a plane fly over and and capture some really huge emission um just using that one number to represent like an annualized emission rate for that site for example is, is going to be an overestimate um and, and scaling that down to to like an accurate annualized number you, you you need information on like how how often does that type of emission occur or how long does it typically last or something like that um and that's where i think you can have some benefit from from these high frequency monitors like continuous fence line monitors um and and they can kind of work well together because you know even if even if you don't fully trust the quantification results from these continuous monitors yet you can still use them in more of like a um like smoke alarm type capacity where where you just use them to tell you if there's something going on or not and you can use that information to then you know piece together you know how how often do these type of emissions occur uh how long do they typically last and then and then use that information together with your your data from the airplane to to create a more accurate number um so i guess the point i'm trying to make here is that i think all, all these things kind of work well together um and there's not like a silver bullet right now uh, in terms of the technology and when we're thinking maybe of this phrase of measure what matters um and thinking about uh greenhouse gas emissions uh, by industrial operations how do you think that we can communicate the this uncertainty and the different variables of um within measurement to stakeholders, to policymakers, to industry representatives. And uh, Rachel, you were mentioning about newer legislation. So how does all of this come into play when we want to think about measuring what actually matters? Yeah, I think that, yeah, I think it's kind of tying off of, you know, what I was saying with aerial measurements where, you know, we have to make sure that we are aware of everything that's going on and, and what's going on is being measured accurately. Because um, I think that, you know, I've I've been working with a lot of operators and, you know, and so CSU has um, METEC, the, it's like our methane test site. And so we've done testing there of continuous monitoring point sensors. And then my research was, you know, going out with the same a handful of the same solution companies and trying them at an oil and gas site. And um, the difference that we saw in the data was uh, substantial, kind of forcing a lot of questions. And I think, you know, working with oil and gas operators, you know, standing on site with them, we have these dashboards from these point sensor companies that are showing readings and they just the operators are very discouraged and they're not um, they're not sold on a lot of these technologies and i think that's a huge i think that's something that's a gap that can easily be set and can continue to span if we don't do something in terms of everyone needs to be on the same page like there needs to be absolutely no like pointing fingers or you have to think this certain way to follow, you know, these standards. And, and I think it just has to be more of like, kind of with the energy transition of just multiple layers have to come together. And it has to be, because I mean, with new regulations coming out, we have oil and gas companies that are going to start getting fined next year for, you know, it's a certain amount for, you know, one ton over, you know, a regulation that they're meeting. And and I don't know if the solutions, if the technologies that we have for measurements are up to par for that accuracy. And I, I think it could be, it's going to be very interesting to see how things play out, what, what technologies are 
preferred because they maybe run lower estimates. But yeah, I think just like moving forward with this, everyone has to kind of really understand the the scope and the main goal and not, you know, because yeah, I, yeah, it's uh, there, there are a lot of players here and there's a lot of money rolling around and there's a lot of big changes that are happening very quickly. And yeah, it'll be, I think it's, it's important to take the little steps moving through in communication with all of the parties involved. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that, Rachel. I think that's a good perspective on it. Um, I, I think, yeah, I'll, I'll reiterate, I guess, the, the importance of like controlled release testing and, um, you know, like single blind testing to to understand the, the, the performance of these technologies. And um, and you also raise a good point of the, of the difference in performance between these controlled released sites and, and actual field performance where, you know, maybe the number of point sensors you're using, for example, is like half of what you use during the control release trial. You know, there's, those are important differences. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe like in real life, there's trees or hills or something like, like actual sites are, are, are very complex. Uh, and so thinking about that difference is important too. And yeah, I, I, I guess I, I have similar thoughts on just that, you know, there's not, it's, it's important not to just go with, or it's important to, to look at all the options and, and realize that all of these technologies are still developing pretty rapidly. A lot of them are still very, are, are very new and, and are, are like pushing these algorithms really quickly that, that they're developing. And so just being mindful of, you know, the, the limitations and the strengths of everything going forward. And I think probably in these early stages of like the Inflation Reduction Act methane fees being implemented, you know, using lots of different types of measurements and, and then working kind of iteratively to see, you know, what worked and what didn't work. You know, it's not like next year, it's not going to be like the the final thing that we're using forever, you know. Is, so, so yeah, I, I, I guess just, yeah, yeah, not, not to be discouraged if, if things are, are more tricky than we think next year. And maybe this is a tricky question in itself, but um, how do you think that um, scientists and analysts can help explain these very complex science kind of work in terms for the average audience? Um, and how can that be translated into something that is maybe a bit more probable for folks that are not within um, within working within the industry or in in um, in measuring uh, methanes and other gases? I think I think the kind of the academic world can serve as like a, a neutral party in, in terms of like translating you know like what the technology providers are are offering to to regulators or to to you know just just normal people since there's you know like the like the technology providers are, are companies you know so they they're, they're trying to, to make money obviously um and and so um yeah i think think the academics can play play like a third party type role in, in terms of like testing and and publishing like results and, and, and being transparent about methods and stuff like that. So I think that's certainly a role that that academia can play. Yeah, well, I agree with that. You know, I think it's just, yeah, like full transparency, you know, just providing this is the data. This is what we're seeing. You know, this is, these are some ideas of how we can, you know, possibly make changes and, but yeah, I think it is really hard to just communicate. Yeah, it's interesting. So Jim came and spoke to, I'm in a transitions and energy systems class. And he came and spoke. And, you know, one thing we're talking about in that class all the time is just consumerism, you know, and like how, how what we're using kind of plays out. And I feel like it in, in the U.S., growing up as a kid you don't really like think about that stuff and I feel like it really is like yeah we think about the future and and you know controlling global warming in some sort of aspect for our next generation right like we want this around for our children because if we weren't doing it then why would we you know and it's how do we continue that on to our younger generations in a way that they don't see it as just you have to be on one side or you have to be on the other. Like you, you can be, yes, you can be for oil and gas and you can also be, you know, someone who wants to help protect the environment. And I feel like just having, yeah, like open conversations, 
talking about what we're using, talking about like what even is natural gas? Why are we doing this? What is, you know, and it's like, we have to have energy. So yeah, I think it's, yeah, just being transparent and just having, I think anytime it's just having more communication and just respecting people and just ex- explaining we're all just trying to make this environment the best that we can for the next generations. And I we, we like this idea about um, of thinking about the future. And is there anything in your work that has maybe provided you with some some sense of um, idea or opportunities of how to um, use data better to maybe optimize operations, to reduce uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, the footprint, or maybe even for best practices that you've you've seen in your line of work or maybe uh, parallel research that you could see uh, being implemented um, within your work? I guess the first thing that jumps to my mind is like the because I, I do so much work with the continuous monitors is, is is using them in kind of like an alert setting where instead of trying to use them to accurately quantify emissions, like over the course of a year, for example, you can use them to just tell you when you think something's going or, or tell the operator when, when, when you think something's happening on the site so that you can go fix it right away. Um, and this is something I think that is still developing like in terms of the algorithms or, or, or the technology that's used um, to like minimize uh, kind of like the false alarms. So minimizing times in which an alert is sent when there's actually no actionable emission going on. And so I think this is something where the, you know, the algorithms can really improve to to fine tune this problem such that these things can operate and, and say like, hey, we think there's an emission happening right now, you should go fix this um, with this level of priority, essentially. So yeah, I, th- I think that's one, one, one way the algorithms can can kind of uh, be refined going forward, I suppose. Yeah, I I mean, I think that, I think there's a lot, yeah, I think there's a lot that's can, that can be improved. I think there's a lot that can be learned. I feel like we're still, like, our, the Zimmer group is always kind of trying to come up with good ideas, and a lot of these come from, like, our advisory board. They have, you know, good ideas of, like, hey, let's look at how methane is pooling around buildings, or let's look at, yeah, how does it how does it change? You know, how are these sensors going to pick it up if there is a hill or if there is some sort of other obstruction? And I feel like, yeah, there's a lot that can be discovered still. Yeah, I think, you know, I think Will like nailed it. And it's, I, I really do think that like continuous monitoring mixed with, yeah, some sort of other technology could do like, you know, a lot a lot of wonders in the future but uh, yeah i think it has to be fine-tuned in a in a realistic environment where there's you know a um, background emission at these sites all over the place because that's i feel like there's been a there's been a good amount of testing but i feel like there hasn't been as much testing on an operating oil and gas site with the number of sensors that an operator is willing to purchase and put on their site so yeah I think yeah but it's when you have and I mean it's at some point hopefully right methane isn't our problem as much like hopefully we kind of get to this place where it's we have our unknown emissions under control and it is cool to hear from oil and gas companies the big ones who are trying to push towards you know just differently sites that are constructed differently you know so they don't have as many of the fugitive leaks so the leaks that are kind of unknown so you have a lot of leaks from you know thief hedges you have so you have companies who are getting rid of tanks they're coming up with these new systems possibly reducing their emissions by you know over 50 percent almost 70 percent and but you still have a lot of small companies that have big emissions coming out of them so yeah, I feel like these the techniques are only going to get better and it's just like can we do it quick enough? And I I very much appreciate this optimistic note Rachel and it serves as a beautiful segue to one of our final questions for our segment today. Um and maybe asking you both what inspires you 
or motivates you about the future of energy? I, I can go first. I, there, there have been a lot of like um, methane conferences this fall, and I was really inspired just by um, meeting a lot of people working in the space that are all super passionate and, you know, meet, meeting them in person for the first time in a lot of times or in a lot of cases and just seeing how much, uh, how many smart people are working on this problem is inspiring to me. Um, I think like the, the oil and gas companies are, are working on it. The academics are working on it. And there's all these private companies building different sensors to measure this and that. And I, I'm kind of optimistic that it will all come together, hopefully in, in a way that we, where we can really make, make a difference. So, um, yeah, that, that, that's something that was inspiring to me. Yeah, I agree with that. It's so great to see so many people who care and who are working together. And I feel like there really is, I feel like there really is a change happening, especially like I feel this class that I've mentioned already, um, you know, we had to write a midterm on energy justice. And I feel like, you know, at the CH4 Connections Conference, there was a whole panel about energy justice. And I feel like moving forward in the energy transition, we're finally asking ourselves, are we doing it right this time? Like, are we, are we addressing everyone? Like, are we making sure we're not just, you know, like, shoving the unfortunate under the rug like we've done for so long that's really inspiring to me is that there are people who number one they want to protect the planet but number two they they really care about everyone and how it's going to affect everyone and it's just great I feel like that's a newer way of thinking where people are like okay let's go slow to go fast let's like get it right build a strong foundation you know measure twice cut once that's how it goes right that twice measure once um but yeah that's just really inspiring it's just to see so many yeah very like smart minds in on something and factoring in you know many levels that we hadn't maybe thought of before absolutely and i i very much appreciate kind of these thoughts of of looking into the future and what is inspiring you, inspiring you and maybe future generations. Uh, and I want to take a few moments to thank you both for sharing your insights and your expertise with us today. Uh, you've given us a lot to think about when it comes to measuring methane emissions from oil and gas operations and also what its implications are for the future of the energy transition. And I, I would also like to ask you both, is there anything else that you feel is important that you share with our listeners, with our audience, any takeaways that uh, you would like to leave them with today? I don't think I have anything particular except for any young girls out there. We need more women in STEM, so it's not as hard as you think it is. Yeah, that's a great message. I'll second that. Um... And I think, yeah, I guess this is something kind of kind of already said, but uh, just that this is, I think, a hard problem, and and um, yeah, think, thinking through like the strengths and weaknesses of of all the different approaches, and I think you know over the next couple of years, we'll it, it will be important to kind of integrate things according to their you know strengths and weaknesses. Like there's not there's not one solution at this point. I think so. We'll leave it at to be determined and we'll have to come back in 10 years and see what uh, what the field looks like and maybe where we're all at. Uh, but for the time being, I want to thank you both for joining us today on the Energy Transition Talk. Thank, thank you. you. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode exploring ways to manage our carbon emissions. It's amazing that we're developing ways to develop greenhouse gas emissions and store them underground for decades, perhaps even centuries. However, there are still large-scale technical and economic challenges, and carbon capture is not a silver bullet. We still need to focus on reducing the carbon emissions that we put into the air in the first place. So being able to identify and locate leaking methane emissions is a huge, perhaps overlooked part of reducing our emissions. As Peter Drucker, the man who invented modern business management once said, you can't manage what you can't measure. So we are one step closer to getting to net zero from the results of research like we've heard about in these conversations. To me, what was interesting was all the emerging technology that can detect methane leaks from satellites, airplanes, drones, and sensitive cameras 
on the ground and then alert operators to fix the leaks more quickly and to stop the escape of methane emissions. If large oil and gas companies can do it, what will it take for oil and gas producers to follow these best practices? By better understanding how production facilities work, operators can actually design new facilities and processes to design emissions out. This takes some capital up front, but it seems like a long-term solution to sustainable practices. There may be a bit of a gap between the technical and the operational capabilities between the big and small companies, but if everyone could reach the best standard, like the methane intensity goals of OGCI, we would be making significant progress towards our climate goals. Until next time, we hope you enjoyed a little more of the story of the energy transition, because the energy transition is up to you and me. We would like to thank the USC Urshaki Center for Energy Transition, which aims to develop innovations in energy technologies and foster the transition to a low carbon future for sponsoring this podcast. Special thanks also to our guests for today and Abi, our technical guru for their important contributions to our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to Energy Transition Talk. Please leave a rating and review and let us know what you found most interesting from today's episode. And make sure to subscribe so you can automatically get access to our new episodes. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Justine. I'm Jim. And I'm Paulina. Signing off from Energy Transition Talk. Stay tuned for the next episode.